0: Um, so as I said, we're going to be looking at Joseph over the next couple of months, really. And you can't help but think, can you, when you think about Joseph, you can't help but think uh, of Joseph and the Dream Dreamcoat, Joseph the musical. I uh, just need to get this out of the way quick and, and good. So, so let's just bring in Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat right, right at the beginning of the musical. If you've seen it, you'll, you'll know that the narrator kicks things off. I think they, they, they sing this. You'll be pleased. I'm just going to say it. The narrator says, "Beyond on the screen, we, we all dream a lot. Some are lucky, some are not. But if you think it, want it, dream it, then it's real. You are what you feel. Most songs sound rubbish when you read them, don't they? Like, you've, got to be, you've got to be sung. This, is, this, this musical, uh, 50 years old, over 50 years old. But, but nonetheless, it's still kind of a musical for our times, isn't it? You've got dreams, you've got ambitions, well, if you want them enough, if you visualize them enough, then they will become real. And it's fun, that the musical, that the tunes are catchy, but don't get your theology from Joseph the musical. First of all, what happened to Joseph? It wasn't luck, like the narrator suggests. It was the sovereign purposes of God being accomplished through the actions of responsible human agents. I appreciate it's hard to turn that into a catchy tune, so I get where they, were, they went with lucky. But that's the truth. It's about the sovereignty of God. Second, the actual truth of, of Joseph, it's not some morality tale telling us that if we just believe something enough, if we just want something enough, our dreams can come true. You can be whoever you want to be. No, the Joseph account is actually about this. What happens when your dreams don't come true? What happens when your life doesn't work out the way you wished it would? What happens when you're on the losing side and not the winning side? What happens when it feels as though you're being kicked even when you're down? Where is God in those moments? How do you keep on trusting him then? we've been going through Genesis off and on for the last four years, and finally we are getting to the end. It is such an important book because it is our origin story. It gives answers to some of those big questions. Who are we? Why are we? And why are we the way that we are? What explains the human condition? Genesis gives us all those answers. But here's the thing. Genesis isn't primarily about us. No, it is about the God who made us, the universe and everything in it. The God who made us that we might know him and enjoy him forever. And the God who never gives up on what he has made. Especially in Genesis, we see how he plans to put everything right through one family, the family of Abraham. And so as we come to this final section, we see how God really can bless and save and redeem the world through this one family. But it doesn't start well. Let's think about that at the first point. The Lord's ruler is rejected by the world. The Lord's ruler is rejected by the world. Now the thing is, whenever we read stories, we, we love, don't we, it's one of the things about stories, we love to read ourselves into the story. And inevitably, when we're doing that, we assume we're the hero, don't we? You know, Lord of the Rings, I'm Frodo, I'm not Gollum. <laughs> Harry Potter, I'm Harry, Ron or Ginny. No way am I Malfoy. And the thing is, we do the same with the Bible. We read narratives in the Old Testament and we can't help but assume I'm a bit like the hero in the story. Cain and Abel, I'm Abel. Didn't end well for Abel, but he was the good guy, I'm Abel. David and Goliath, David, that's me, the little guy slaying the giant. Come to Joseph and his brothers. And instinctively, we think, oh, I'm a bit like Joseph, the underdog who comes good. And maybe. But let's just take a look at the two sides in this story, Joseph and his brothers, and maybe think, who are we really like? First, we'll look at Joseph, verse 2. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhar and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. You read that, and it sounds as though, doesn't it, that Joseph was telling tales on his brothers, sneaking back to daddy, telling daddy all about how his brothers are not doing what they should be doing. And then it turns out that Joseph is Jacob's favourite. And Jacob then gives his son this incredible cloak, this ornate robe, multi-coloured coat. And we think, I bet Joseph wore that cloak with a bit of pride in his heart. I bet he was wearing that cloak all the time, probably slept in it. And then Joseph has his dreams that his brothers would all bow down to him. Can we imagine, don't we, Joseph relishing being able to tell his brothers about these dreams. You know, you're not, one day you're going to bow down to me. We think that Joseph was probably a hero, don't we? But a fallen hero, a bit of a spoiled brat, daddy's favorite, maybe a little bit proud. And then we read verse four that his brothers hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. And it's kind of sad, but we're not surprised given what Joseph is, is like. Joseph is, is spoiled, He's proud. He's winding up his brothers. But here's the thing the Bible doesn't say that. Yes, he gives a bad report about his brothers. But you flick back three chapters and you can see what his brothers are like. Last time they headed to the city of Shechem, they wiped out the entire male population. They they get up to things that they shouldn't get up to. And we're going to find out later in the chapter the kind of things they get up to. They try and kill or they sell Joseph into slavery. So you begin to think, well, maybe there was some bad stuff that Joseph did need to report back on to his father. Well, what about the dreams? Surely those dreams are proof that Joseph was a a little bit proud, a little bit spoilt. But again, later in the Joseph story, we are specifically told that these dreams come from God. And we're also told that dreaming the same thing twice was the Lord confirming to Joseph the truth of those dreams. So you see, Joseph having these dreams, he couldn't help it. They were from the Lord. Him sharing them wasn't necessary. We've read into it that he did it in a proud way. There's no reason to think that he did. He was just sharing what the Lord had revealed to him. Now, I think the problem is when it comes to Joseph, we project ourselves onto him, don't we? We read ourselves into Joseph and we assume that he is like us. You know, if we had to give a bad report about our siblings or our colleagues or someone at school, we'd relish it, wouldn't we? We'd embellish the worst bits probably and dampen down the good bits. We assume, therefore, that Joseph must have done the same. Well, We find it easy to identify with Joseph because we think he is a bit like us. He's the victim, he's the hero, but like us, he's not perfect. So who do I identify with when we read this account? Oh, Joseph. But as the Bible story unfolds, it becomes clear that we should project someone else onto Joseph, not ourselves. Joseph isn't like us. That we should identify Joseph with another figure. Let me give you some clues. Who is Joseph? He is the beloved son of the father. Who is Joseph? He is hated by his own people, his own family. And what happens to Joseph when he shares what he might be one day? His parents doubt. Look at verse 11. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Jacob, when he hears the dream, does rebuke Joseph. Don't be ridiculous. He's conflicted. On the one hand, he thought Joseph went too far with his dreams. But on the other hand, he keeps the dreams in mind. What if Joseph really is being set aside by the Lord to be king? Does that remind you of another parent who heard bewildering things about her son who might have doubted but ultimately believed? Listen to Luke chapter two, verse 16. It'd be on the screen. They hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child and all who heard it were amazed and what the shepherds said to them. Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart just like Jacob did with what he heard about Joseph. Do you see, and we're gonna see more of this as we go through the chapter, who is Joseph actually like? He's not like us. He's like Jesus. He is the father's beloved son. He is the innocent one rejected by his own people. But here's the thing. That creates a problem for us, doesn't it? Because if we can't identify with Joseph, we're left with the brothers. And we don't really want to be identified with the brothers, do we? That is an uncomfortable place to be. The haters, the jealous ones, the envious ones. And we think, look, that's not us. We're not like the brothers. But just notice why the brothers really hate Joseph. Listen to verse 8. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of the dream and what he had said. What is it the brothers cannot stand about Joseph? What can they not cope with? The thought that they would have to bow down before him as God's chosen ruler. And you know, that is exactly what Jesus experienced from his own brothers, the Jewish people. When he's on trial before the Jewish courts, Jesus says in Mark 14, You will see me, the Son of Man, at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming with the clouds of heaven. The response? The high priest tore his clothes. He was outraged. How dare this carpenter from Nazareth presume that he will be our king? Do you intend to rule over us, Jesus? This is why we are like Joseph's brothers. Because instinctively, we don't like the idea of God's ruler ruling over us either. You know, we we think, don't we? Look, if we were alive when Jesus walked the earth, we would have been on team Jesus. No, No doubt, definitely team Jesus. We would have been like John, maybe, the disciple that Jesus loved. Or perhaps we'd have been like the women who who stayed with Jesus even when he had died and were up first thing three days later to to kind of care for his body. That's that's who we would have been like. We'd have been on Team Jesus. The truth is, if we'd been in Jerusalem when Jesus walked those streets, I don't think we would have done so well, would we? At best, maybe, we'd have been a bit like Peter, who denounced Jesus publicly three times. Or, or do you remember that other disciple who was the, with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? The, the guards, they, they grabbed Jesus and then they tried to grab this other disciple, but all they could get was his cloak and he fled away naked. Do you know that, that? That sounds more like what we would have been like. At best, fleeing naked because we don't like the idea of being identified with Jesus. But more likely, we would have been with the crowds chanting, crucify. Crucify him, crucify him. Do you intend to reign over us, Jesus? And Every day, even if we're following the Lord, we still struggle with this, don't we? There are areas of our lives that we effectively say, do you intend to rule over this part of my life, Jesus? I don't think so. My thought life, my viewing habits, my hopes and dreams... My relationships, my anger, my lustful thoughts, my spending habits, my ethics, my sexuality, my parenting, my work practice, whatever it is, do you intend to rule over this part of my life, Jesus? I don't think so. So who do we identify with in the story? We want to identify with Joseph, but the reality is we are more like his brothers. It's kind of depressing, isn't it? And it should be, should cause us heartache to have our own hearts shown to us in the reading of the scriptures. But then one small glimmer of of, of light in all of this. Remember a moment who Joseph's brothers are. They are the beginning of God's people, Israel. I think that's why the author gives Jacob his other name, Israel. These are the founding tribes, the founding fathers, of God's people, Israel. And so here's the one small bit of comfort. If there is a place in God's people for the brothers of Joseph who started off hating God's ruler, then there is room for us in God's people. Yes, there needs to be repentance. Joseph's brothers do repent, but if there is room for them, if Joseph is able to forgive them and welcome them in, There is mercy and forgiveness for us as well. For all the times when I question Jesus' rule over my life and my heart. There's mercy and forgiveness for all the times that I resist his commands. Why? Because the king that is rejected by the world cannot be stopped from saving the world. Our first point, the Lord's ruler is rejected by the world, but secondly, the Lord's ruler cannot be stopped from saving the world. So for a while, there is peace in the family. That's not because they made things up. It's because the brothers had been sent off on a mission to go and graze the sheep. They've taken the sheep to a place called Shechem. And Jacob is a little nervous about this. Mentioned it already, the last time the brothers were in Shechem, they wiped out, they started a war and wiped out the entire male population. So Jacob, understandably a little bit nervous. He he sends Joseph off to make sure everything is going as it should. Eventually, Joseph finds them. And verse 18, Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him at a distance. Probably what the brothers saw was the multi colored, ornate robe that Joseph was still wearing. And this, I think, is where you could say that Joseph was perhaps a tad naive. Wearing that cloak, it marked him out as daddy's favorite. You know, sometimes you get those baby grows, don't you, with funny slogans on? Who needs a superhero when you have my dad? Cheesy, awful stuff. Of course I'm cute. Look at my dad. To the brothers, that's what Joseph's cloak was like. Wearing it was like shouting to them, I'm daddy's number one. And so look how they react, verse 18. Before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Things have escalated quite a bit, haven't they? But then sin is like that. Satan works like that. He loves to slowly escalate things. So in verse four, the brothers don't like Joseph. By verse five and eight, they they hate him even more. By verse 11, they are filled with jealousy. And by verse 18, they're ready to kill him. Brothers and sisters, we, we need to open our eyes to the creeping poison of sin in our hearts. Satan loves to start small. He loves to get us to compromise in some small way, to harbour a small bitterness or a small anger in our hearts, to lie in small ways, because he knows that he can work with that. He can escalate that. You think you've got your little bit of bitterness under control. You think you've got your tongue and its little lies under control. You think you've got your occasional lustful glances under control, but before you know it, they are controlling you. Destroy sin early before it destroys you, or destroys your marriage, or destroys your career, or something else. Sin had increasingly poisoned the brothers' hearts. They were ready to kill Joseph. And look at verse 19. What is driving that murderous intent? Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what happened to his dreams. See, above all, why is it the brothers want to kill Joseph? It is to thwart those dreams, to stop him becoming ruler. But remember, these dreams aren't really Joseph's dreams. It's not like the musical. Joseph, you know, the musical, Joseph is dreaming big. Joseph is setting his heart on the top. No, these dreams are God's dreams. They reveal God's plans and God's purposes to raise Joseph up and ultimately save the world from famine. The brothers are trying to thwart not Joseph, but God. And look how they go about it. First, Joseph is sent by his father. The brothers see him coming and they plot to kill him. Then they strip him of his robe and they throw him into a pit. Instead of leaving him for dead, they see something, verse 25, a group of traders heading to Egypt. And Judah thinks, let's not kill him. We can make some money out of Joseph. So they sell Joseph for 20 shekels of silver. And then they lie about what they've done, and they tell Jacob that Joseph was killed by a wild animal. And so by the time you get to verse 35, you think, do you know what, maybe they've done it. Maybe they really have thwarted God's plans to make Joseph king. Verse 35, all Jacob's sons and daughters came to comfort Jacob. He refused to be comforted. No, he said, I'll continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Everyone assumes it is the end of Joseph. And it feels like verse 35, that hatred wins, jealousy wins, humanity wins against God. But then you get verse 36. And maybe the story isn't over. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So yes, Joseph is a slave, but look where he's ended up, in the household of one of Pharaoh's most important officials, the captain of the guards. Turns out, the story isn't over. And here's the best bit about the Joseph story. The brothers did all that they could to make sure his dreams never came true. But every evil thing they did to Joseph to stop him becoming king turned out to be the very thing that ensured he would become king and save the world from famine. And right at the end, the curtain is pulled back and we see what's really going on. It's not just coincidence that it happened that way. In chapter 50, verse 20, it'll be on the screen, Joseph having reconciled with his brothers, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> Chapter 50, verse 20, he said to them, don't be afraid. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. It's brilliant, isn't it? Joseph is saying, when you kidnapped me, when you sold me into slavery, you intended it for evil to get rid of me, but God brought about good. He raised me up. And actually, what is so powerful, so mind-blowing, is that Joseph does not say this to his brothers. You did some evil things, and God reacted by doing some good things, and in the end, God outmaneuvered your evil. That that would be impressive, wouldn't it? It, As if God was some master chess player. Now, we, We got into chess in quite a big way over the summer, started teaching the little man, Elijah, how to play chess. And first, I was very generous. I'd point out, you know, when I was about to take a piece, just so that he could protect himself, I'd still make sure I won, but, but I'd, I'd want to help him. But then one time, he beat me in five moves. Like, I couldn't believe it. He beat me in five And then he started singing that he was a better chess player than me. So after that, showed him no mercy whatsoever. <laughs> Soon went quiet after I'd beaten him ten times in a row. But the thing is, this is the point I'm trying to get to. When teaching chess... Anyway, I was trying to show him, you can have a plan. I don't think he had a plan. But you can have a plan. But the thing with chess is you've got to learn to react to your opponent's plan as well. And maybe that's what we think is going on with God's sovereign control of the universe. We make a move, and then God responds with a move to get things back on track. But that is not what Joseph says. The very same action that the brothers intended for evil, God intended for good. He he didn't just react to their hatred and their jealousy. He, He didn't just react to their greed that sold Joseph into slavery. He used those very things for good to save the world through making Joseph king. That the very actions the brothers thought were thwarting God's plan were the very actions God was using to accomplish it. Do you see? It's brilliant, isn't it? This is how our God saves. He turns evil into good. 4,000 years after Joseph, another father had a beloved son. That son was also sent by the father And that son told his brothers, the Jews, I will be king. And that son was rejected as well. And they did all they could to thwart God's plan to make him king. This will stop him, said Judas, as he sold Jesus for silver. This will stop him, said the chief priests, as they had Jesus stripped, not just of his robe, but completely stripped and beaten. This will stop him, said the people as they demanded that Jesus be crucified. This will stop him. But in reality, the very actions they thought were thwarting God's plan to make Jesus king and save the world were the very actions that God was using to make Jesus king and save the world. It's brilliant. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You cannot thwart God's king. You cannot thwart God's purpose to save the world through Jesus. So much that you could take away from this morning have just scratched the surface, but go away perhaps with this one thing in your mind. The story isn't over. For Joseph, as he lay in the pit, he must have thought, it's over. Or when he was sold as a slave, I'm finished. Or when Jesus bowed his head and breathed his last on the cross, it must have felt as though it was all over. God's king and God's plan failed. And for us, sometimes it feels like it's over, doesn't it? When we're in the pit, when our dreams haven't come true, When our marriage is a mess, when we have fallen into some sinful cesspit, when we have screwed up one too many times, it feels, when our life feels like it is shrinking because of a failing body, it feels like it is over, doesn't it? But when your God is the kind of God who can use evil to bring about good, you know that the story is not over. It isn't over until every one of God's promises and plans are fulfilled. It is not over until you see Jesus enthroned in heaven and until you are raised to new life and brought into his glorious presence to live with him forever. Then it is over. If nothing else, then remember this. Put your hope in Jesus and know that your story is not yet over. One final thing, as we finish. On Wednesday at Redeemer Prayer, we had an update from the prison ministry, and uh, Pete, uh, Adam is involved, but Pete and Ruby go in as well. And he read out a testimony from a prisoner who recently came to faith. And at one point, the prisoner said, "This: the Lord led me to prison so that I could meet Jesus." You know, when he fell into crime and was arrested and imprisoned, it must have felt as though life was over for him. But looking back, he was able to see the Lord using evil for good, leading him into jail so that he could meet Jesus and find everlasting life. Who knows where the Lord might lead you, but wherever it is, believe this, do this. Put your hope in Jesus and know that your story isn't over. See, Joseph is not really about your dreams and hopes coming true. Do you think Joseph dreamed that he would be Kidnapped, sold into slavery, end up in prison in Egypt. Do you think that was his dream? Of course it wasn't his dream. No, more what it's about is when dreams turn to nightmares. And when you feel like you're on the losing side and when everything seems to be against you. Joseph's story tells us that it's not over. Our God is the God who turns evil to good. He has saved the world through his king. Trust in him and the story isn't over. A moment of quiet and I'm going to pray.